welcome to the Glow Journal Podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the co-founder of Bondi Sands, Blair James. I have wanted to feature Bondi Sands on this podcast since long before episode one, as they are an Australian brand that have truly dominated the market, both locally and internationally. Blair James, the brand's co-founder, has always had an affinity for branding with a fascination for the Nike effect, forming one of his earliest childhood memories. His first dalliance with entrepreneurship came as a child, selling his dad's stock at a local shopping centre to pay for a watch that he had his eye on. That early passion led to Blair eventually opening up his own tanning salon and when he discovered a gap in the market for a tan that combined the quality of high-end brands like Saint-Tropez and the affordability of brands like Latan, he worked with business partner Sean Wilson to develop Bondi Sands. Bondi Sands today, having launched in 2012, boasts a 70% market share. I caught up with Blair at Bondi Sands Australian headquarters to discuss how one secures an endorsement from Kylie Jenner, the brand's expansion into the US and the UK markets, and how the brand used social media to completely dominate the tanning market. So I understand that before you launched Bondi Sands, Bondi Sands, sorry, stumbling over my words, you owned and ran a beauty salon for several years. But prior to all of that, when you were younger, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Oh, if we're going back very young as age. As far back as you feel like going. Okay, this is going to be a long story. Then. Okay. <laughs> um, I've got nowhere to be. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I grew up loving sport, like most most uh, kids my age. So loved my basketball, mm-hmm. loved my car racing. So oh, that's such a specific interest. Yeah, I used to love Peter Brock and, mm-hmm. and Holden Racing Team. So even to the point I used to get in Mum's car and pretend I was putting on the racing helmet, changing gears and everything else. So yeah. like I really wanted to race cars as a kid. Um, basketball was something I was obsessed with for, for years. So mm-hmm. I really always wanted to be an athlete. Got into um, sprinting in my teenage years right? and that really sort of took over a lot of my focus. So I was really basketball and athletics. Um, but part of that, brands had always been part of um, my upbringing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was an engineer at Ford Motor Company and I remember the, we just loved Nike as a kid. Yes. And so we'd always talk about Nike and a Nike ad would come, out, come on and my dad and I would just talk about you know, why do they talk that way? Why do they? Mm-hmm. So like that branding education started very early on. It was just really just discussions with my parents. And um, so that's been a love since I've had, since a kid. So it's really there's that sports background, mm-hmm. uh, but I have always loved business and, and branding. Um, so, yeah, I guess always pictured myself being an athlete. Yeah. Uh, but then obviously owning my own business was something that I thought about very early on. Well, I was going to ask that because obviously having a real interest in branding and being drawn to Nike in particular, which obviously, you know, a global brand with really, Mm. you know, iconic messaging and imagery. Did you imagine that you would end up founding a brand? Was entrepreneurship something that interested you? Yes, definitely. I think um, I was actually, when I was 18, 19, I actually lost, my dad passed away when I was 17 Mm -hmm. and he 
always wanted me to go to university, always wanted me to study. And yep. so when I finished school, I went to university and I studied uh, applied science and I did occupational ah. health and safety. And I really thought, you know, it was more about pleasing him. Right. Um, I wasn't really inter- interested that much in what I was doing, but mm-hmm. I thought that's what he would have liked me to have done. Just trying to tick a box. Yes. And I got two years into that course and I saw the people around me that were getting so uh, so invested into their uh, assignments and their mm-hmm. classes. And, and I felt myself like I was just missing something. It's just I wasn't excited by what I was doing. And I dropped out um, of university. And, and my mum said to me, um, yeah, I knew you, you were always going to drop out. And I was like, oh, <laughs> great, thanks. Thank you for letting me know two years <laughs> yeah. into it. And with thanks the for the, um, yeah, thanks for the, the lack of um, <laughs> encouragement. And she said, no, 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 I didn't mean it like that. It's more like you were always meant to do your own thing. Right. You were always... Um, whenever you wanted something, you went out and created it and you did it. Mm-hmm. Um, you meant to go and do your own thing. And even I remember as a kid this story I've, I've told a lot, you know, quite a lot mm-hmm. these days, but um, I've always had a love for watches and cars. Yes. Um, still to this day and shoes. And my dad had a, a shop in the UK. So mm-hmm. we lived in the UK when I, when I was younger. And he was importing Australian products into the UK. Right. Funnily enough, it's you know quite coincidental. Yeah, one of the We're doing a very similar thing. And he had all these uh, boxes of Vegemite and peanut butter and mm-hmm. all these things out in the back back store room that he wasn't selling. And I came across this calculator watch that I wanted, and it was eleven pound. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't give me the money. We were sort of struggling for money at the time, and wouldn't give me the money for it. So I went out the back, cut up these boxes, made little trays, filled them with Vegemite and peanut butter. Walked around the shopping centre selling them for a pound each, which was oh very God, expensive <laughs> for a jar of Vegemite back in you know, the late 80s. And I sold all of his stock and I made £33. I went and bought my watch. A high roller. Yeah, as a, as a seven-year-old. And um, <laughs> went back, gave him the change and he's like, well, what's this for? And I was like, I went and sold all your stock. And he goes, you can't. and when I bought my watch, and he's like, you can't just kind of take my stock. And then like... But that planted a seed. Yeah. It was that, you know, <clears throat> at a very early age to experience that, that you can create something from nothing to, you know, to get where you want to get to. So, um, yeah, that was something that I learned very early on mm-hmm. and continued to be like that. So you've dropped out of uni. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then am I right in saying that you were working in fashion for a period of time? Yes. So I was an area manager for a couple of streetwear brands. Mm-hmm. And um, this was... It was after a pretty tough time. So I went through, um, so as I mentioned, my dad passed away when I was 17. Mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at Jesus. 20 when I was 21. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was at that point just trying to really get, really working just to get through that time. Um, yeah. And to, you know, mum needed caring for and everything else. So it wasn't really a focus on what my career was going to be. It was literally just day to day. And um, so I worked with that with a company called Street Exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were based on Chapel Street. And, yeah, so I looked after a number of their stores and um, did that for about two, three years. Right. And then it just got to the point where I wanted to do my own clothing store. Mm-hmm. So I started looking at, uh, looking at stores around Melbourne. I was living in Port Melbourne at the time and Bay Street was just being redeveloped. There was yes. not many apartments there. And at the time, not what it, is, not what it looks like yeah. now. <laughs> And I walked past this. Sh- yeah, I walked past this vacant shop um, just down on Bay Street, and I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, that looks like a great place." You know, it's right near all these apartments. There's a lot of people around, and um, so I started inquiring about the leases, and, and mm-hmm. that got me, you know, thinking about doing my own store there. And that prompted a discussion with my brother, 
And mm-hmm. he said, well, why don't you look at like a salon? And it was, you know, it was tanning beds and, and spray tans back then. Yeah. And, you know, once, you guys, once you've set that up, you guys, it's, it's, you know, it's passive income. It can keep, you don't need to keep reinventing yourself in new fashion all the time. So it's probably mm-hmm. an easy way to get into business and start running your own show. Um, so that sounded like a good idea to me. Yeah, and so, as it would. Yeah. Um, so that was, you were on the lease in that, on that store back in 2005. Mm-hmm. And began fitting the shop out December 2005 and we were open by the first week of uh, February 2006. God, that's a quick turnaround. Yeah, I literally quit my job and put everything. Oh, my God. Yeah, so when I was lucky enough, not yeah, unfortunately, um, when mum passed away, it's left me a little bit of money. So yeah. it, was, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to um, get the shop fit done and, and be able to support yeah. myself for a few weeks. And that day we opened. I remember I was cleaning the, sh- the store the night before to about four in the morning. I was like, nah, I want to get it open. So it's just like Sunday morning. We're going to open on the Monday. Yeah. I was like, nah, it's clean. Let's just get open on the Sunday. And I remember, yeah, looking at my banking out thing, I had $180 left. Yeah. And that was it. So yeah, I remember I going hope to work. Someone that- comes in today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully made some money that day. So it was, um, it had to work. Yeah. And but I was confident in what we're, what we're doing and. Um, yeah, I mean, it took a while. I mean, any new business mm. takes a long time to get off the ground. And yeah, that was a business that I worked in until uh, 2012. Right. I mean, it's got a real vibe of the block to it, just sweeping until four o'clock in the morning. It's definitely a lot of that because you're just like, you're just thinking as soon as I get this open, the sooner I can start making money. Scott cams out the front with a clipboard, <laughs> that kind of thing. It was a bit of that. Yeah. So it was in the salon that you first developed your own tanning formula, which were you, was, you were using in the salon to spray clients. What was the catalyst that led you to go, okay, I actually need to create my own thing rather than just using what's here? Yeah, it was um, at the time spray tans were just getting, I think it was a, a mix of, um, yeah, people were really starting to understand the, um, the health implications of laying in the sun and that yeah. sun safety message was starting to... Um, you know, was starting to sink in. Took us a while to get there. But <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, um, spray tans were also getting very good. So the yeah. quality was great. They weren't orange anymore and everything else. So it was, at the point, we were doing close to 400 spray tans a week through that salon. Good God. It was a lot. It was, I know we were the probably number number two or three salon in the country mm-hmm. in terms of, um, you know, in terms of that franchise. And um, it really led to the point where I'd had to, turn people away mm-hmm. so just couldn't yeah we were spraying from 8 a.m through till 10 30 at night every 15 right. minutes so you just start oh turning God. people away it's a nice problem to have but it's also great super problem stressful and it really i started saying to people oh look i'm coffee for a spray tan but why don't you go try the tan or why don't you try mm-hmm. a saint tropez and you would just get this feedback which is always the same it was it doesn't last long enough or it stinks or the color's not good enough yeah and that was really got the mind sort of ticking over and start thinking, well, what's the difference? Like why is a spray tan so much better than what you can get from a, um, a mm. self-tanning product? And <clears throat> so, you know, my business partner, Sean, was a client mm-hmm. in my salon. That's how we first met and we started, you know, discussing, you know, business ideas and, you know, we came to the self-tanning idea and we thought, well, let's just start with, let's just make a spray solution. Let's yeah. go to a, a manufacturer and start understanding how they actually work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what we did. We went and made our first product. And, yes. Um, there's a few iterations backwards and forwards, but mm-hmm. it didn't take long before the product we'd created based off the feedback that we've had, what customers liked, what they didn't like, that we had a product that people were coming in asking for. Mm-hmm. It was only sort of you know three or four weeks before people were coming in saying, I really love that spray tan I had last time. Can yeah. I have the same one? And that's that moment we go, okay, cool. This is what people want. 
now let's adapt this to a self-tanning product, mm. which is not an easy process. They're completely different compositions. Um, yeah. So two years of formulation mm. would um, follow oh after that decision. God. What were your non-negotiables when you were creating the formula? Um, no orange. Yeah. So what and what we found is when you go to a manufacturer and you say you don't want orange, um, they try to push you to use caramel in your product. Yeah. Caramel is a very stable product. Mm-hmm. Um, it will sit on the shelf for a couple of years, no problem. It doesn't break down at all. If you mm-hmm. start saying, I, yeah, I don't want any orange at all, I want a blue-green dye base, which is what most spray tans have, right. that brings in a whole level, a whole list of issues um, around um, products being uh, instable, mm-hmm. unstable. So, you know, particularly with DHA, which is an active ingredient, yeah, um, it does impact colour dyes really quickly. So product can turn green really quickly. Mm-hmm. So at the time... You know, we were quite an innovative brand in terms of taking that level of blue-green dye, um, you yeah. know, I guess to create that olive base, uh, get that to market with a high level of DHA uh, with a long shelf life. Yeah. I've had a number of people come on the podcast and talk about, particularly in Australia, how difficult it, they had just finding a chemist. People mm-hmm. just, especially being a startup, people coming back to them being like, no, we're not going to do it. So how did you go about finding someone to help you formulate? We had a, um, a contact of my business partner, Sean. Mm-hmm. So it was contact of uh, his dad's actually that was um, from a, man- a sun care manufacturer here in Australia. Mm-hmm. and But they're also a very big manufacturer. So right. when we first went in there... It was we were confident of, of they were making some of the big brands at the time. They right. already so we knew they had the experience in making self tan, mm-hmm. but we didn't like their products at all. So, but when, when we went in there, we were told this is a bit of a waste of time. Um, not a waste of time, but it's you know, it's very difficult. And you know, Such you sure a nice you want to do it? To hear when you're starting a business, <laughs> you don't get a lot of encouragement when you're starting yeah. a new business, particularly something like this where you're going to say. We're going to go and p- compete with the biggest self tan brand in the world, being Central Pay. Yep. Not a lot of people take you seriously, and um, but we were very confident in our brand positioning, what we wanted to create. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a lot of, we educated ourselves on the market globally. We saw yep. there was a trend. Self tan was gro- growing globally. Uh, that sun care awareness message was was sinking mm-hmm. in globally. So we we're very confident in what we're, what we were doing. Our manufacturer didn't take us seriously. They did humour us and made us a few made us a few mm-hmm. samples. How um, kind of them. Yes. And, yeah, now we're obviously one of their biggest brands that uh, they manufacture for. So yeah. it's been now to the point where they invest in our um, own manufacturing lines. Mm-hmm. So basically we have dedicated lines which are just for Bondi Sands. Amazing. So it's it's been an amazing journey over, you know, we first went there in 2010 mm-hmm. to look at uh, our first lot of samples. There are obviously a few major differences between a professional formula that you use in salon and what you can take home. You've touched on the difference between the two formulas, but also just manufacturing a product. Where do you start? Where do you, you know, start working on the branding, packaging, the name? Where yeah. did you go from there? I think it was a the inspiration for the name came from something I held on to from a kid as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I played basketball in America when I was fifteen, right and um, like I said, I was obsessed with basketball as a kid. Yes. And was desperate to go play basketball in America and I got that opportunity when I was 15 and 16. And what was really obvious to me was, you know, we used to play against high schools in America mm-hmm. and you'd rock up to the school and there'd be a bunch of high school girls at the front waiting for your bus to arrive and they'd just 
hanging to see a bunch of Aussie basketballers <laughs> and their perception is the bronze dozzy. That's what they think. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what, you know, Crocodile Dundee did wonders <laughs> for us <laughs> in the international market. And that really stuck with me about that perception of what Americans saw us as. Mm-hmm. So there was, when I started working uh, within tanning products and, and spray tanning, that that experience remained in my mind mm-hmm. um, and really felt that there was a big opportunity at the time to create an Australian branded product um, that was linked to something that was iconically Australian um, with you know, being Bondi mm-hmm. and it wasn't that traditional Australian branding that everyone was used to seeing. It was more like modern yes. Australia. That's what we wanted to create. And then that really was coupled with what we wanted to create as a product. So it mm-hmm. needed to be salon quality like a spray tan. Mm-hmm. It needed to be affordable because um, obviously we were targeting younger consumers and yeah. we wanted to keep the price point very simple. It was We spoke about... We think our target market's at you know, 15 through 18, 20-year-old girls. Potentially they're spending money that, that is given to them by the parents. Mm-hmm. So walking in and handing over a $20 note and getting yes. changed is important. Um, and then being Australian-made and Australian-owned. At the time, um, a lot of manufacturers were moving over offshore, going into China. Well, they and still are, I think. I still are. think you guys are kind of a rarity. Yeah, I think it's become a lot more fashionable to be supporting Australian Definitely. industry. Um, it was a decision we made very early on from mm-hmm. a brand positioning standpoint, but it was also something we felt passionate about and we still do. I mean, all of our products are, are still made in Australia. The only thing we make overseas is um, our application mitts because mm-hmm. we just don't have um, – we can't get a manufacturer here. Right. So everything else is done here. So the – Brand positioning, the I guess the education and the um, experience behind that um, sort of took place at the same time as the brand was as the products were rolling out, and mm-hmm. and both sort of impacted each other on equal parts. And as it started to roll out, I feel like I read a quote maybe from Sean that said, "Well, we weren't going to call it Port Melbourne Tan. It just doesn't quite roll off." I the used tongue. yeah, I've used that joke so many times <laughs> in the office, and I think if the, the girls in the office hear me say that one more time, I think they're going to get kicked out. So I love it. Yeah, timeless. It's true though. It's definitely true. So, was there any advice that you obviously you're getting knocked back a bit by your um, manufacturer? But was there any advice that you received during that period of the brand being in its infancy that you find you're still applying to your work now? I don't think there was anything really in terms of advice we got. We mm-hmm. we pushed a lot of boundaries when we launched this brand. Yeah. We did things very differently to what everyone else did. Mm-hmm. We we were very upfront about wanting to be the world's biggest tanning brand and this was yeah. before we sold a unit. Ambitious. So, yeah. So people think you're crazy when you're going to be <laughs> telling people you're going to be the world's biggest tanning brand. And one of those things that we did push boundaries with or, or try to think differently was black and white packaging back mm. in the in the day when we presented that to our PR agency and, and people that were in the industry, their feedback was, no, it needs to be gold, it needs to be bronze, it needs to be yeah. this to fit in the tanning industry. And we're like, well, that's why we're doing it because mm-hmm. it's the opposite. It's a very simple message. We have a brand a value about being simple or being sim- simplistic in the way we market. Light medium is white and dark is black. Yeah. Um, and you look at the industry now and literally – most of the products on the shelf are the black or white. Yep. So we were the first brand to, uh, in self-tanning to launch black packaging globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of – a lot of the lessons we learnt were things that was more about believing in our own vision. Yeah. Um, we felt that, uh, I guess, established manufacturers or marketing agencies or they had pre – you know, they had – perceptions that were already created mm-hmm. and it was because oh that's just the way it is so i think what we learned the most was 
trust what we believe in, um, follow your own voice or own vision. And that's something we still do today. It's, we, we don't look at other brands in terms of what they're producing, how they're marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, we have goals and visions of what we want to create and we focus on that. Back yourself. Sound advice. Yeah. What products did you launch with? We had two self-tanning lotions, yeah. one medium and dark, and we had an all-skin types aerosol mm-hmm. and an application mint. So that was it. Oh, my God. Very and then simple. you look at it now, <laughs> leaps and yeah. bounds. So how was the response when you first launched? Um, well, this was – we had – when we launched the brand, we – as I said, we really had international aspirations from day one. Mm-hmm. And back in 2010, we didn't really think of 2011 that Australians – were really that engaged with Australian products. And they probably weren't. No. Um, we thought our market was the US, so we thought the market was Europe mm-hmm. because that was, you know, that aspirational Australian image. Yeah. So we thought Australians would look to Isantropes and those sorts of products. So we um, we considered going to the US first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had an opportunity to get in fr- uh, through our distributor here in Australia um, that we came across we had the opportunity to present a price line mm-hmm. and they took product in. And That's amazing. I think that, yeah, the product when we launched, it's not as polished as it is today. Mm-hmm. And I look back at it sometimes and look at what we launched was, you know, cringing a little bit because <laughs> we did the we did the design. We, we chose the packaging. We did everything. Mm. But we, it was only Sean and I. So we didn't have money to do all these other things. So the product on shelf looked very basic. And mm-hmm. I think that actually worked in our favour. People looked at it as they could tell it wasn't a big multinational. It was well-priced. And once they used it once, they felt like it was that they'd stumbled across their little Aussie secret. Mm. They had a great result with it and they just kept buying it and kept buying it and kept buying it. And um, so I think we kept, you know, we actually benefited from not being overly polished. Mm. And um, that was, you know, a bit of a surprise at the time, but... The response was overwhelming from from day one. Um, it was filling a gap. Absolutely, That's the thing. yeah. The quality, yeah, the quality in self tan at the time was it was very limited. Yeah, as as we discussed earlier, um, Saint Tropez was the best quality product in the market. But you're looking at fifty, sixty dollars. Um, yes. We and then your other options the other end of the scale yeah we if you want to look orange for a couple yeah. of a week it's yeah that's which right, 16 year old Gemma really got around because yeah. it was like i don't have 60 dollars i'm working yep. a muffin break <laughs> this is not an option yeah well sean and i, I think sean um i read an article uh, sean was talking about uh, had spoken in and he, he recalled a time walking through the nursery at the races and we were just launching our brand and we we're looking around at all these orange ankles and we're mm. like this is crazy would like, have been me <laughs> yeah so you have touched on how you guys were doing everything to start with every mm. single part of it. What was the biggest lesson that you took from that period of wearing so many hats within the business? I think it was, you know, you become an expert in all parts of your business. Yeah. And that's something that I think is actually, it's crucial to the development of any new business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it be customer service. So my day but generally, you know, it was starting at like 7.30. I'd get up and I was doing all the customer service emails for the first two years. Mm-hmm. So I was literally replying to customers. Like, it's my idea of hell. <laughs> yeah. So I'd allocate like four hours that in the morning oh just going back God. and forth to people. But that even that simple task is is education. Mm. You're, con- you're yeah, that's talking a good to your consumer to on a daily basis. You know, social media wasn't what it is today. Mm. Um, but it was like – and I was not really wanting to just blow people off with just one email. Yeah. It was kind of like – Tell me more about a your dialogue, experience. Like yeah. really wanting to know, yeah, how they're how they're seeing the product. So, 
you know, I think it's it's vital to any new business to be across as much of the business as you can in the very mm. front, uh, very beginning, become an expert in all parts of your business so that when you do have the opportunity to scale, um, you can mm. obviously coach and develop people in the right directions to represent your brand in the best way. So, I mean, you've come quite a long way given that if my math serves me, the Bondi Sands portfolio is something like 40 products across mm-hmm. tanning, accessories, this, you know, body skincare now. What came next? So self-tan was really the, the direction for... So we launched in uh, August 2012, yeah. September 2012. Um, we launched the self-tanning foams in 2014 mm-hmm. and that was when the brand really took off. Yeah, yeah, they're iconic. Yeah, and they're still... The dark foam is still our best-selling product. Not surprising. Um, yeah, we're selling one of those every nine seconds globally. Oh, my God. So it's... it's it, it is one I of say like, not surprising, but every nine seconds is... Yeah, okay. It's a, it's a lot of product. Okay. Yeah, but it, it's just, it's it's that go-to product. It always yeah. works. It's easy to use. And um, so it was really off the back of those two products. We became the number one brand in Australia mm. um, by 2015. Oh and um, so at, at that point, we started to realize that product development was, might seem like a simple thing, but mm-hmm. product development was vital to the brand yeah, growing. Yeah, of course. And at the time, social media was starting to grow as well. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like we started to re- understand that consumers want to engage in new new things they want to see new products being developed they want to see mm. brands taking risks and, and trying new things and uh so that's really built really our direction for for the brand mm-hmm. from then on when you are sort of conceptualizing new products are you listening to like how does the process work are you getting feedback and going okay that's what we should do next or do you always kind of have the next product ticking away generally we'll always have the next product ticking along mm-hmm. um yeah we i think we look at about two years down the track. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can turn around products. We turn around products faster than anybody. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we do get products to market in, in six months at times. That's crazy. Which is unheard of in, in that cosmetic industry. Truly unheard of. And um, that rate of product development is, has been very difficult for our consumers to keep up, uh, our competitors to keep up with. Mm-hmm. It's um, So, yeah, we don't – we obviously keep an eye on trends. We do um, have a look at sales reports and just to yeah. see – more so see how our own products are going. But generally we will have our own products in mind of what we're going to yeah. roll out. And inspiration comes from all different areas. Like we, we, we look at – if we're looking at uh, launching a new product, we may look at different areas of cosmetics. We might look at mm. you know, the way people yeah, – marketing or, or launching products in hair care. It might be something from automotive. There's, there's ah. all different inspirations that come across to come through when producing something new. Well, that early interest in branding has certainly <laughs> come in handy. Yeah, and a lot of it, a lot of it's not new. Yeah, you know? like that's that's part of what branding is. It's almost mm. you know, it is recycling things that have happened before, but you know, you know, new iterations and evolving on those. And, yeah. Um, but it's so yeah, think about it also having your vision for the future, but also remembering what's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. That's so important. So if there's anyone left, I imagine there's not, but if there is anyone left that hasn't tried a Bondi Sense product yet, mm. where should they start? you start with the foams. Yeah, I think so foams. too. Yeah. I think if you're looking for a simple regime of products, um, you want to be you want to develop colour quickly mm-hmm. but then help it um, you know, prolong that, that colour. Application mint is a must. Yes. That needs to. Oh, my well, God, Well, if you're going to yes. go that far, probably the um, exfoliation mint first. Yeah. Prepare your skin. The application mint. Dark foam, light foam, depending on yeah. skin tone. Um, and then the gradual tanning milk that you can just yes. apply daily after that. And you can really Bail prolong safe. that tan as long as you as long as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a good like, little set to start with. Yeah. 
I read a figure from last year that estimated that Bondi Sands hold something like a 70% market share, which is unbelievable. A really broad question, but what is it about Bondi Sands that you think is resonating with so many people? Uh, I think it's... There's probably a number of things. <laughs> there's, I think there's a lot of things. I think what it comes down to is it's the we pride ourselves on quality of product. Yeah. And it's that confidence in, you know, you walk in to buy a Bondi Sands product, mm-hmm. you know what you're going to get out of that product. And, you know, we don't um, oversell our products. They're literally what we tell you they will do or, yeah. you know, what we're promoting them to be. That's what you're going to get when you buy that product. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I guess there's a bit of a push at the moment, well, a bit of a trend at the moment with Instagram brands. Yes. And I think they've got their priorities around the wrong way a lot of the time. It's all about, you know, it's oversell this product. If you mm. sell it once, that's great. That doesn't grow a business. Repeat yeah. purchase is what builds a business. So um, we know that, yeah, I think that's that's why the, the brand is uh, able to continue to grow the way it does is because people will just come and buy it time after time after time because it's well-priced and it's the best quality mm. on the market. It's interesting that you touch on Instagram brands because when you were talking about kind of the backstory, I was thinking about how, I mean, you've worked in the industry and you spotted a gap and then you developed something to fill it where I feel like the mentality now is I want to start a brand. What can I mm-hmm. do? And like pull something out of thin air. It's a very different approach. It's, it is amazing. I I would say I probably meet with about three to four people a week mm-hmm. that want to start brands. And it's, really? Yeah. And it's a lot of the time it's just asking questions. And, and I enjoy these conversations. It's like you know, I enjoy business. I enjoy branding. Of and It's my favorite topic. And I'm sure my girlfriend gets sick of hearing about it most of the time. But <laughs> I do really enjoy it. So I, um, any opportunity for someone that reaches out to me to have a chat, majority of the time I'll try and make time to do that. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the first questions I ask them. It's like, why do you want to do it? Mm. And it's amazing how often the response is, oh, I've seen how big the market is and I can make this much money. And and, I was, and I've, I've spoken about this a lot is that, you know, if your motivation for doing something is money, that's going to burn out really quick. Absolutely. Um, to give you an idea, you know, first three years, Sean and I weren't pulling out any money. Mm-hmm. Two years in, I was still cleaning apartments to pay just yeah. so I didn't dip into the money from selling how the How humbling. Yeah. Mm. So it's kind of like... And I talk a lot about sacrifice to yeah. people. It's like it was, yeah, sacrificing your, your dignity, I suppose, or <laughs> to um, to make sure that I was available to go and do whatever meeting came about. Mm-hmm. I had to have something that was bringing in some money, but at the same time um, I could drop, you know, snap my fingers and, and go to. Um, yeah. So a meeting or, or whatever it is. You've talked about why Australians jumped on it so quickly and when I think about when I first started, I think the phone would have been the first thing that I used. It really was, you've said Saint-Tropez and Latan, that was why because the options were few and far between. That's what drew Australians to it but you are now stocked internationally. Mm -hmm. How has the response been from the US and the UK? It's been probably if not stronger than what it was here wow. in Australia. And, you know, we, we had that international view from day one. That's mm-hmm. why we call it, that's why it was called Bondi Sands, the Australian tan. Yeah. Um, that Bondi perception, if you think of Bondi, and, and like it, it's such an amazing place. and All the photos behind you. I wish there was a visual component to this podcast, yeah. icebergs. <laughs> yeah. And that's such a global image that people just of resonate course. with. And we wanted to not just market a product it's ma- uh, marketing a feeling that goes around Bondi mm. Sands it's you know when you think of Bondi it's you know the the tan guys and girls running on the beach yeah. it's, it's that Australian aesthetic that 
you know, the rest of the world aspire to and would love to see it at some point, but really don't have it in their everyday life, mm-hmm. particularly in the UK where it can be quite grey a lot yes. of the time. So um, the UK understood Bondi, they understood the positioning, they were big self-tanners. So it was really, it was the prime market for us to launch into. We were very affordable going into that market. Um, I think we launched originally around 14 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, in central pay was at low 20 pounds. So it was yeah. very affordable. And, um, you know, we launched with an exclusive partner in Superdrug over there Amazing. and they supported the brand. And so, we, yeah, we were quite confident launching into uh, the UK market. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was similar sort of growth trajectory of what we had here in Australia. It was, you know, That's the so first good. two to three years it was consistent. Year three and four was where it really started to skyrocket and we became the number one brand in the UK last year, end of last year. That's incredible. So, um, and it's really I'm not really showing any signs of slowing down. The US, it's really funny. We wanted to take this to the US first. That was yeah. that was the that was the plan. We thought they you know really believed and loved that Australian mm-hmm. lifestyle so much, and it's gone round the other way. That yeah, around the other side of the world ah. first, uh, and we ended up in in the United States, and we finally got the opportunity to launch into the United States with yeah an amazing partner in Walgreens and yes, they gave us huge. Yeah, over 7,000 dollars to launch into wow. which is one of the, uh, one of the largest launches of any Australian cosmetic mm. brand into the United States so um, immediately we saw that our message was getting cut through um, we became the number one brand within Walgreens within two and a half three months oh my God. and now pushing 50% market share within Walgreens so we went straight in against the L'Oreal Neutrogena and these big multinationals and mm. um, we had Probably a lot of uh, consumers or customers in the United States already buying our product online. Yeah. So some of those were going in well, the store. that helps. Yeah. But what we found, which is really interesting, is we're not just selling more Bondi product, but we've actually increased the size of the Walgreens um, self-tanning market by ah. over 120%. Wow. So we've not only created our own market share, but we've increased the level of sales for uh, L'Oreal and Neutrogena. So the whole category is built. Yeah. So they've lost market share to us, but they're actually turning over more revenue than they were before. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I did want to chat a bit about social because I feel Mm -hmm. like it was on Instagram that you guys really exploded, obviously Mm -hmm. being such a visual medium Mm -hmm. and, you know, tanning, you kind of do need to see a before and after. You touched on how you and Sean were doing everything at the start. Yep. So what was your social media strategy to begin with and how have you had to kind of evolve that over time? Yeah, well, I think our social media strategy in the beginning was not much. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, back in, uh, yeah, so that was 2012, we were just doing some posts on, on Facebook mm-hmm. and, you know, Sean and my ability on social media was pretty horrible. Um, so, and at the time, I still had my salon and mm-hmm. we had a, a staff member there, Molly, yeah. who ended up being our first Bondi Sands uh, employee. Ah. So she ended up working for me and left the business this year. So she'd been working with me for, uh, or with me for about 13 years. Wow. So back to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And we felt that Molly had a, um, a real authentic uh, positioning around the way she uh, posted in the way, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, um, the way she spoke. So, um, 
we brought her in as a contractor basis to begin with to yeah. look after our social media and that was really where the organic posting started, um, I suppose around 2011, 2012. And she really uh, developed that Australian voice of the brand yes. and gave the brand, I guess, a personality to connect to. Mm-hmm. That people felt like it wasn't just a company, it had a personality of a real person. And that really developed that tone of voice and, and something that we focused on and still focus on very heavily in terms of what that voice sounds like in the social space. Yeah. Um, so at the time, there was a lot of Facebook. Uh, Instagram was very early. Yes. Very early on. Um, so it was really just about, at the time, it was almost just really sharing with our friends at that point. Mm-hmm. We came across, really tapped into that first use of influencer probably yes. around 2013. Mm-hmm. And this is how we came across Steph Claire Smith. I was going to say the fact that she's still with the brand this many years on speaks yeah. volumes about the product. Yeah, and I think it's something we... We talk about a lot is that you know as we've grown, Steph's grown, and, yeah. and she's matured and and really built into you know this identity now yeah. that has her own products and she's on TV and she's um, and so yeah we kind of felt like we've both had this rise um, together yeah. which is which is amazing. I don't think see so you, you see a lot of those brand influencer relationships much. Well, no, you don't because I feel like with the I guess the immediacy of digital, people will just do one post and then. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. On to the next. So we, we um over time we really developed we believed in we've always believed in who you align yourself with is mm. is where I guess you're viewed by the public. Yeah. So this is why I think we decided very early on that we wanted to be a social brand. Yes. But we were not an Instagram brand. Yes. So we, very different. Yeah. And so we encourage social media, but we believe that we for our product to turn into a global brand we need to sit on shelf alongside your l'oreal's saint-tropez the brands that everyone recognizes. so we're a, a very unique brand in terms of we're very retail focused mm-hmm. but all of our marketing efforts and and funding goes into online yeah. and social so yeah and we cross over that space um very well and that's you know, most of our competitors you know don't market their brand in, in that sense no they don't um so it was very early on, we were sitting in a, a PR meeting and we were talking about people to represent our brand and do some initial posting for us on social. It was new for us mm-hmm. at the time that someone would, would pay someone to post about our product on social media or product seeding through a PR agency. And uh, at the time, we were presented with two options mm-hmm. to do some posting. One was a traditional celebrity, which wanted, uh, had about, I think, maybe... 40,000 followers. Yeah. And the other option was Steph Claire Smith, who mm-hmm. had 100,000 followers. Her cost was a, a fraction of what the celebrity was. And yeah. it was that moment was like, well, we've already looked at Steph before in terms of she'd be great to represent our brand. And we thought, Gee, why wouldn't? And like, it's, you know, these people obviously following her because they love who she is, not because of. And they still are. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not just because she's a, a celebrity. Yeah. Um, and that was really the first, you know, influencer that we looked to work mm. with. And. She became part of the brand and is very much mm-hmm. a part of the brand now. And it was something that we believed that over time we didn't want to just use influencers for a post here and there. Yeah, we believe that um, long-term uh, engagements with these ambassadors and creating like a Bondi crew around people yeah. that we always turn to to help launch our products and to educate the consumers with. And it works twofold because people look at the brand and say like they obviously you know their product is obviously good because these people want to align with mm. it for a long period of time. People then also look at the influencers and look at them as a more credible um, source of information as well because 
they've decided to align with Bondi for, for years on end. Yes. And that's something that's been very important uh, to the brand and it's still a strategy we use today. I mean, I've talked about it ad nauseum on here so people will probably tune out, but I just think people are too savvy if they see someone one week saying this is my favourite tan and then two months later they're talking about a different one, yep. their followers are like, what are you talking about? Absolutely. And we, we had a um, – I always talk about very early on when we started this, we had some very strong views on what we, the brand wanted mm. to be, what we wanted to be. And we used to get a lot of um, – we'd approach someone to work with us and they mm-hmm. would come back and they'd say, well, this brand's offered me this much. Mm. My response was always like, okay, well, we can go back cool. and say with them, okay, you're uh, more than welcome to go work with them. Yeah. Most times they'll come back, they would come back and then want to work with Bondi. And that was a position we still take. And, you know, we believe that if you want to work with Bondi, we want you to be a, a brand fan. We want you yes. to love Bondi. We want you to um, be part of our brand. Mm-hmm. And um, if they're willing to work with us, we can give them some, some great opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like obviously we do, um, you know, some amazing launches around the world. And yes. and we like to share that with as um, bigger community as we can. I mean, Coachella, no biggie. Coachella is not too bad. <laughs> no my first time biggie. at Coachella, not a bad way to do oh it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, while we're on influencers, mm. August last year, Kylie Jenner. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's just huge for you guys. I don't think people would quite understand how many brands would be coming to her on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So for her to even like read the email, let alone say yes to it, it's oh, unbelievable. When we first reached out, we thought, oh, you know, it's worth a oh, shot. We'll just give it a crack. <laughs> we'll give it a crack. And that's that's pretty much what we do a lot of the time. It's just like, oh, let's just try it. Mm. Um and yeah, I mean, we were incredibly humbled, really, to get that yeah. feedback. And um, you know, she does get hit up by hundreds of brands uh, yeah. on a daily basis, and they're amazing to work with. Um, incredibly professional, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, and also because the product was quite close to what her own range of products is as well. Yeah, I mean, it is close to that it cosmetic space. So it was. Um, yeah, we were surprised that she wanted to do that, but she is actually a fan of the brand, had used the product already, so um, good. and so. Yeah, again, it's like people want to work with you once they're a fan of your product mm. um, and they believe in what you're trying to do as a brand. Amazing. Mm. Bondi Sands is now seven years old, about to turn seven? About seven, seven this Amazing. year. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and you were obviously already working in beauty prior to launching the brand. So what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the industry over that period? I think... Um, I mean, we've been around long enough to see the the shift between traditional media to social. Yeah, that probably has to be the biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah, I guess the respect that these some of these YouTube um, mm. beauty vloggers, you know, what they command now is yeah. they really dictate the the beauty industry now. It's mm-hmm. it's at the point where um, yes, we still uh, media still a big part of that, but. Yeah, you know, just the, the the audiences that they engage with is just is yeah. just massive. They're and celebrities in their own right. Absolutely, now. and they just have so much um, credibility and clout when you're talking about a product. Mm. And um, you know, when when you do a review of a new product, it will literally you'll see the result immediately off the back of that, where you know, consumers are actually going and buying your product mm. straight away. So I think that's probably been the biggest shift. And you know, it's a massive focus of our business now is is really social media influencers and, and social media um, or YouTube. Yeah. Ambassadors. And what are some of the biggest changes that you think we can expect to see in the coming years? I think we're going to see, I think in, in particularly social media continue along the track it's at now. I think yeah. you can get to the point where some of these influences are potentially going to be 
like license to certain channels. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see people that have that have got exclusive agreements with certain channels. Yeah, um, I think it's going to get to that point. Um, I think you'll start to see more brands realizing that you know long term engagements are more important than a one off post, and they're yes, looking to align with them so. for yeah, and really bring them into the brand more mm-hmm. and immerse them in this is the new products, this is how it works, and really creating you know groups of these big these uh, I guess authorities on their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably that's yeah I guess a continuation of what we've already seen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my last question. Mm-hmm. What's next for Bondi Sands? Gee, we've got a lot going on yeah, at the moment. Yeah, doesn't uh, surprise me. <laughs> yeah, the brand is, is moving in you know several different directions. Um, we are having more of a cosmetic direction, which mm-hmm. is coming through this year. Uh, sun care is a big focus for the brand. Um, Great. We do have a big global launch that will come up at the start of next year. Amazing. Uh, so we can reveal a bit more of that later on. Yeah, um, little inter- teaser. Yes, uh, we're very excited about that one. And... Um, I think just it, it's more about, um, I guess, global expansion now, really focusing on the US market. Um, that will quickly become our number one market in the world. Um, the UK has almost moved on par with Australia now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think in a couple of years in the US that will be our number one market. But it is really focusing on growing the brand globally, but at the same time focusing on more MPD and trying to be as innovative as we can. That was Blair James co-founder of Bondi Sands, which you can find on Instagram at Bondi Sands. To read my interview with Blair, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.